Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Out of Office. I'm your host, Malika Kapoor. There's a lot that's been written about grit and the key role it plays in creating successful leaders. When I recorded this podcast, that's the one word that kept coming to my mind over and over again, grit. Strauss Selnick has it. Currently the chairman of Take-Two Interactive, one of the world's leading game publishers, it's the company behind the Grand Theft Auto series. He's also the founder and CEO of private equity firm ZMC. He's learned from setbacks. When I started out, I was, I was blessed. I was able to give the opportunity to run big organizations very young and I didn't know what I was doing. And I got feedback. And in fact, I mean, the, the hardest feedback I ever got was after I'd been at Fox as president studio for about six months. And uh, one of my senior colleagues came into my office and said, we think you're really smart. We think you know the business really well. Uh, we think you have absolutely no leadership skills. Over the years and various CEO positions, he's developed his own leadership style. If you're involved, if you're there, and especially if you're a leader of an organization, which I am, take personal responsibility. You know, skipping the step of personal responsibility is a definition of lack of leadership. He's also gotten a lot fitter. And I was sitting around uh, with a friend and he looked over at me and he said, you have a paunch. And and my response was, no, I don't. I'm thin. I've always been thin. He said, well, look down. I looked down. I was like, oh, oh, no. And the next day I, uh, I started my fitness program. Strauss is in his early 60s. Known for his six pack and toned physique, he's authored a book called Becoming Ageless. We talked about that and much more during our chat, for which he joined me from his home in New York after his morning workout. Here's our conversation. So Strauss, welcome to Out of Office. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You are chairman and CEO of Take-Two Interactive, founder of your PE company, ZMC, former chairman of CBS, author, and America's fittest CEO. Well, I don't know about that, but uh, the, the publicity <laughs> says that. <laughs> How should I prioritize these? Which one goes first? Well, I think, I think what goes first is that I'm, I'm a husband and a father, um, a, f- a friend and, um, and a mentor uh, to, to many. And I'm hopeful that that, that would be first and foremost. Uh, beyond that, uh, you could, you'd probably want to put the work next. So, you know, take two and ZMC. And after that, you can put, um, 
you can put fitness. Okay, okay. We're going to spend some time talking about fitness in a bit. But before that, just to address the current situation, how have the last few months been for you and been for your company? Well, there's been a lot going on, right? And so um, in terms of the pandemic, you know, this has upset so many lives, had an enormous effect on the economy, and so many people have been displaced and um, impoverished and find themselves in exceedingly difficult circumstances. And uh, I, I, I think it's important to stop and reference that before I talk about how, you know, how we've managed to, to sort of survive that as a, as, a, as a personal matter, I'm blessed. I'm with my family. As a corporate matter, I'm also blessed that we have an incredibly resilient team, that we are a technology enterprise, that we already had a disaster recovery program in place and a work from home program in place that was uh, exceedingly well thought out. And we were able to, at Take Two, move over 5,000 people to a work from home environment in early March within seven days. And obviously, Take Two has performed exceedingly well. Um, the company was already very strong, and people sheltering at home uh, has increased demand for interactive entertainment and other forms of entertainment. And we have actually benefited from that. So as a result, we, we decided to give back and we put in place a program to donate 5% of our next bookings from our key titles in April and May um, and to donate that to COVID-19 relief, poverty, and other, other forms of uh, charitable organizations that can help people in need at this time. More recently, of course, just, just when you thought things couldn't be more challenging, we in the United States have faced uh, a terrible uh, event where racism led to violence, which led to murder. And uh, there have been numerous protests and a lot of civil unrest related to that, which, sad and shocking as it is, is completely understandable. When voices feel unheard, uh, terrible things happen. How do you keep your employees reassured, calm, and motivated during a challenging time like this? Constant communication. Uh, empathy, engagement, uh, and um, openness. And uh, we've been in constant touch with our team. And not all of our communications have been handled perfectly. And when they haven't been handled perfectly, I take personal responsibility and uh, do personal outreach and response to all team members who want to talk. And we keep trying. Um, we, we are a company that we believe lives by example. We have, have an extraordinary culture, extraordinary morale, exceedingly low attrition, uh, especially compared to our industry. I don't like the word tolerance because tolerance implies um, addressing something that is uh, unpleasant. I, I prefer the word acceptance. You know, we accept people for who they are, where they are, where they come from. Um, whatever it is, we accept you. And um, as long as you observe our code, which is in addition to working hard and being good, being decent and kind. And uh, it's one of the things that makes our organization such a special place to work. How do you create a culture of acceptance within a firm? I mean, some firms have it more than others do, and that's just a fact. It's a tone from top to bottom, and it's choice of who works there. And as I like to say, um, culture like character is tested in the breach. And um, when you have a firm where you have bad behavior, 
inevitably it's because that bad behavior was either enabled or allowed. Uh, and we, we don't enable or allow inappropriate behavior. How has working from home worked out for you? Uh, I think for most of us, you know, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't work with my hands. And so I, I work by sitting around talking and reading and writing. So I can pretty much do that anywhere. And unquestionably the technology we're using today, video conferencing technology has made it a lot easier. I, I, I was always a bit skeptical about working from home. I think my, my suspicion was not that much work got done and a lot of being at home got done. And I've been disabused of that notion. Our team is very productive working from home. I am not of the view, though, that working from home has just become the new normal. We don't need offices or anything of the sort. I really do believe in in-person collaboration. I believe that that's how cultures are created. And while I think it's relatively easy to have an effective meeting over Zoom, it's much more difficult to get to know someone, to have an informal collaboration, to run into someone that you didn't expect to run into, or to share a cup of coffee. And that's what we need our offices for. And we're looking forward to getting back to our offices as soon as we can do so safely, comfortably in accordance with government uh, suggestions and regulations, and in a way that makes all of our colleagues comfortable. Have you been working out more? Uh, well, I've already worked out a lot. I'm lucky I have a gym here, <laughs> so and I have my, my kids here and they like, they like working out. So I've been working out plenty. And I don't know about you, I, you know, I find myself probably more productive in a shorter time window because there's no commuting. There's yeah, no breakfast, sure. no breakfast or lunches out. There's no walking from place to yeah. place. So while I'm busy, my day kind of does slow down late afternoon, which I never did before, you know, about five, six o'clock, generally it's slowing down. And so I do have time to work out in the morning and time to go back and get some more exercise in the evening or take a walk with my wife. So... How did your fitness journey start? Tell me about your aha moment. Oh, that's great. Well, I had an aha moment, um, which is I'd always been thin. I never put on weight, uh, but I didn't pay much attention to fitness. I sort of ran in, in college a little bit, and I lifted weights. I played squash, but I, I didn't take fitness seriously. And I was in grad school, and I was sitting around uh, with a friend, and he looked over at me, and he said, you have a paunch. And, and my response was, no, I don't. I'm thin. I've always been thin. He said, well, look down. I looked down. I was like, oh, oh, no. And the next day, I, uh, I started my fitness program. And, but I started very gently. I started by just doing some sit-ups and pull-ups and push-ups at home for a few minutes, a couple times a week. And I did that for a while until I sort of felt ready to try more. Then I went to the gym, not something I really loved doing. And I started doing circuit training. But I would literally go for like 20 minutes, two or three days a week. And as my body got accustomed to the training, I added more and more. And I basically added more and more over the years. And as I've gotten older, I've always tried to do more and add different things. And probably the big leap forward for me was when I picked up cycling in my early 40s because it was social. I could be out there with friends as opposed to being solitary in the gym. And, uh, and I learned that working out with other people just makes complete difference. And now I almost always train with other people or train with a big group. And some friends and I sort of stumbled upon a fitness group that we ended up starting called The Program in New York. We're 60 to 80 people trained together. Now we're training together online. We trained together online this morning. Uh, and I saw some videos. That's it been, looks intense. Yeah, that's, that's been great. <laughs> this morning wasn't too bad. So when you really amped up your fitness, though, wasn't it because of something your wife said to you? Oh, that was, yeah, I left that part out. That was, that was my second or maybe third aha moment. My, my wife at one point said to me, 
this is also in my early 40s. She said, honey, for someone who goes to the gym a lot, you, you, you don't look all that great. And I, and I said, she said, I, yeah, exactly. And she said, well, you should probably get a trainer. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm fitter than all the trainers I see in the gym. She said, you're not fitter than this trainer. And she introduced me to a trainer named John Kim. And John trained me for about three years, three days a week. And that, that was a huge step forward. It was miserable, by the way. Which is why it was good. 6 a.m. Now, you know, I have mixed feelings about that. I think, I think you can get in great shape without it being miserable. Tell me about why you decided to put your fitness knowledge and your experience into a book. Uh, well, my buddy Dave Zizenko, who, who has his own publishing and uh, media company uh, called Galvanized, um, encouraged me to write because he thought it would be a story to tell people that age is not a limiting factor in being your best self. And um, that resonated with me because I, I was, <laughs> believe it or not, once upon a time I was quite young. And um, when I was young, I, I was always told about all the things I was too young to do. And, you know, you're too young to have a big job here. You're too young to be a studio head. Or, um, and uh, as it turns out, I wasn't. And um, mm -hmm. as it turns out, I was able to do a bunch of interesting things at a young age. And then, um, I, and I, then I noticed, as soon as I turned 36, I went from being the young guy to being the old guy. I was like, what happened? Don't you get any middle in there? <laughs> Suddenly, everyone who worked with me was younger. And by the time I was in my late 30s, early 40s, you know, I was turning into the old guy. And, and now, you know, I, I'm 62 and, you know, I hear people say, well, you know, you have to slow down or when are you retiring or you can't possibly still cycle or ski. And, you know, I, 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 feel, I feel exactly the same thing on the other side, which is why on earth would I want to be limited by my age? So the book basically says you can you don't have to decline. And the view was you can basically live like a middle-aged person for the rest of your life, maybe to the last two years of your life if you're unlucky. And uh, I know a bunch of people have done that. My father-in-law did that. My mother-in-law is 90, soon to be 93, and she lives like a middle-aged person. She gets around on her own, really? lives independently, uh, looks great, uh, sharp, and she lives as though she's 40 years old. Um, there's no difference. So I think um, I wanted to convey to people that that's possible. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com.
How has all your learning um, from fitness, the mental, uh, you know, things like you said, uh, you're allergic to people or not people, you're allergic to the idea that something's been done in a way, a traditional way before. How have your learnings from fitness influenced you as a person and influenced you as a business leader? Oh, it's great. I mean, I think the notion of, you know, being gentle with yourself, starting slowly and developing skills and abilities um, applies to life and to business. I think a willingness to try new things, a willingness to make mistakes speaks to fitness and to business. If you're pushing really hard and you're trying to innovate and you're pursuing your passions, not everything will always work out. And so we have a willingness to fail, um, pick up our pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, and try again. And that's true of fitness as well. I still, because I'm constantly trying new things and because I'm I'm not a natural, I'm constantly failing. You know, I don't cycle as fast as some of my friends and I don't ski as well as some of the people I ski with. And I keep trying. I, I never give up. Yeah, you're being very humble. Oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm being accurate. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you deal with failure? I mean, especially in, a, in the business world, you know, what's your sort of philosophy when it comes to failure? How do you deal with setbacks? Uh, well, I have, a, I have a philosophy. First of all, a failure is usually a collection of mistakes. We all make mistakes every day. If you address a mistake in real time or as quickly as you can, it typically doesn't turn into a failure. A failure is a collection of mistakes that you didn't address along the way. But certainly when I make a big mistake or I'm responsible for a failure, uh, or one occurs in my organization, I have a process that I go through. The first is to see it as it is, not to engage in denial. It's always temptation to deny it. The second is to take personal responsibility, personal responsibility, whether you did it or not. If you're involved, if you're there, and especially if you're a leader of an organization, which I am, take personal responsibility. The third is to figure out what went wrong, Right. The fourth is try to fix it and make it right to the best of your ability. Uh, and that includes apologizing if there's someone on the receiving end of it. The next step is to learn from the whole situation. Learn what you did wrong. Learn about how you handled it. Learn about how you addressed making it right if you could. And finally, the last step is to move on. Is to move on. It, never forget, but to move on. Uh, there, there are people who will skip those steps. You know, skipping the step of personal responsibility is a definition of lack of leadership. You know, you, if you see a leader who says, I'm not responsible, this is not my fault, this is someone else's fault, that, that's to my way of thinking, you know, completely at odds with leadership. Um, not stopping to, um, to address it and figure it out, well, then you'll do it again. Uh, not trying to make it right is just bad form, not apologizing to those you've harmed is, is lack of common decency. Failing to address it and learn from it is a missed opportunity. And finally, failing to move on just means you're going to wallow in it. Um, so that's, that's a broad description of the process that I, I try to go through and I encourage my team to go through. But you know, whenever something goes wrong at our shop, um, and do things do, I start by taking personal responsibility. And then that just releases everyone to try to dive in to solve the problem. That's the most important thing. You've talked about another quality that you think is very important for a leader, and that's be able to be able to take criticism 
and to learn from it. Uh, you talk about an incident when you were much younger, when someone called you out and said, hey, you're kind of cold and aloof. So can you tell us a little bit about that story? Well, I've heard it more than once. <laughs> when you see ego or arrogance or distance, usually the other side of that coin is insecurity. And when I started off my career, I was so young and ambitious and didn't know anything, and I was terrified and I think, and anxious. And I, I think I hid that behind a wall of, unintentionally, of being um, quite formal and reserved and, uh, and uh, that could come across as cold and aloof. And I, you know, even now, and I think of myself as, um, I think of myself as warm and fuzzy. My, my wife still says, well, no, you still can come across as kind of aloof. Um, I'm, I'm, I consider myself a really good listener. I try to listen much more than I talk. And sometimes I think if you're quiet, people can misread that. And look, it may just simply be my demeanor. I typically have a very calm demeanor. I, I, don't, I don't talk loudly. I'm, I don't raise my voice. Um, I'm pretty, pretty even. Um, maybe that could be misread as, uh, you know, as being a bit cold. I've learned, and I learned early and often, that the sign of a, a good leader is someone who primarily focuses on the other person, primarily cares about other yeah. people, and primarily wishes to be of service. And when I was starting out, I was all focused on like, me, 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 like, am I getting promoted? How do I look? How do I sound? How am I doing? How'd the work go? You know, how much well, am like I getting paid? you said, paid? you were so young. You were <laughs> well, we all start young, though. By the time you were, <laughs> yeah, but you were like 30. Two, I was younger you than that. Uh, heading a major, yeah, so a major I, I, movie, st I mean, Fox Studios, right? Right. When I, when I, I had a bunch of wake-up calls along the way, but one of them was, you need to learn how to lead. And leaders, in my opinion, the best leaders are servant leaders. They understand that the work doesn't get done in the CEO's office. The work gets done everywhere else. Your primary job is to enable others to do great work and, um, and to address their issues. And I spend much of my time trying to be of service. And in fact, when we talk about our mission as an organization, we talk about our constituents as, you know, there's a whole, uh, a lot of discussion about corporations sort of coming to the view in the last year that maybe we have other constituents apart from shareholders and returning capital to them. And my view was, really, that was, that's something new. My view all along has been, we have, we have at least four constituents. The first are our customers. If we're not serving our customers, we have no reason to be in business. The second would be our colleagues. If we're not serving our colleagues, how can we expect them to serve our customers? The third would be our shareholders because they give us the capital to be in business and they deserve a return. And finally, we serve ourselves. We eat last. And I think looking at the world through that lens, which I've always tried to do, is one of the reasons that we've enjoyed the success that we've had. So what's made you look at the world through this lens? Why is this so important to you personally? Failure, obviously. I mean, when I started out, I was, I was blessed. I was able to give the opportunity to run big organizations very young, and I didn't know what I was doing. And I got feedback. I mean, in fact, I mean, the, the hardest feedback I ever got was after I'd been at Fox as president of the studio for about six months. And uh, one of my senior colleagues who worked directly for the chairman, it was his job to deliver the chairman's messages at times, uh, came into my office and said, we think you're really smart. We think you know the business really well. Uh, we think you have absolutely no leadership skills. And I was shocked and appalled because I define myself that way. I define myself that way. And, uh, but what I've, I've thankfully, I've 
I've never been a defensive person and I've always been able to to listen and accept criticism even if it even if it's not constructive or nicely said and this was both constructive and nicely said and uh and I I, I happened upon a book called How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie in an airport of all things and I just I just picked it up and uh to this day I recommend it to everyone who asks me questions on this topic it was written in 1936, so it's very old-fashioned, but it is the primer on what makes a great leader and a great friend. And its title, which sounds a little bit like how to be the most popular kid in the class, really doesn't do it justice. The, the real story of that book is if you want to succeed as a salesperson, as a leader, and as an individual, take a sincere interest in other people. Start there. And as I said, that was not where I was starting from, and I changed. And that book actually really, really pushed me to change. And I started, you know, it became like an exercise. You know, let me make sure I'm thinking about other people. And it's an exercise. I still reread the book every year. I, I need a constant reminder. I don't know about you all, but I do. Oh, really? You had this drive to succeed from a very early age. And you had uh, sort of the business sharps, it seems, from an early age. Because even when you were a teenager, you were... You had these odd jobs and interesting jobs on the side to make money? I did. And you gave guitar lessons? So you you name it. I, I, I just was, I, I didn't want to like make minimum wage by flipping burgers, although I, one summer I did that for a couple of weeks and it, I worked at a uh, sandwich place and I was responsible for making French fries and cleaning the grill. And the, all, well, it was impossible to be good or bad. It was totally mechanical. And you just had to do what you were told. And I'm good at doing what I'm told. So um, I'm sure I was fine. But all the grease just got like everywhere suffused into your body. And it was so horrible. My mother used to make me um, take off all my clothing in the garage because I couldn't have it in the house when I came home because it was full of oil. So I, I gave that up after two weeks. And I realized I got to find jobs that pay more per hour and don't involve grease. So I started giving music lessons, which I was sort of capable of doing. I did children's birthday parties. I was a musician, a magician. And, uh, I read about that. Yeah. I was, yeah, it was yeah, okay. I didn't have any particular talent at it, but I was funny. I could make balloon animals. Balloon animals. Yeah, I was you good did at that. that. I was good at that. <laughs> That's amazing. And tell me a little bit about your childhood. I know, I know we're having a laugh about balloon animals, but I know that your childhood was, was tough on many levels as well. So if you don't mind going back in time and telling us a little bit about your early years and how that really had an impact on who you are. I had a pretty tragic childhood. Uh, I lost my mother when I was 10. I, uh, uh, my parents divorced four years before that and uh, went to live with a different family with my aunt and uncle who became my second set of parents. And um, it was a very tough displacement. And... Um, I was really fortunate that my 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 new parents welcomed my siblings and me and made us part of the family and raised us and took care of us. So I was very fortunate compared to a lot of other people. But you know, I, I, I essentially lost both of my parents, my my birth father and my my mother, and uh, that you know that takes an incredible toll on an individual. And I don't. I don't think it was unrelated to the ambition that I felt and still feel to this day. I think, you know, my, my running a little bit harder and faster because of that, uh, probably. 
So you, where did you grow up, though? Which part of the country? Boston, Mass, and then uh, outside of New York City in uh, the New Jersey suburbs. You've always been on the East Coast. Yes. And, uh, yep. And then there was the time to go to college, and a Harvard rejection stung pretty hard. Oh, you did your homework. Yeah. Well, it was stung pretty hard isn't really, doesn't really do it justice. I mean, I, I just assumed my family had gone to Harvard for generations, and I just assumed I was going to Harvard. Um, I went to visit, and I was like, yeah, I belong here. This is great. Problem was Harvard didn't think that. <laughs> so luckily, um, luckily, I'd, my, my mother had encouraged me to apply to Wesleyan, and uh, Wesleyan was actually interested in having me there. Lord knows why. I was a pretty good student in high school and certainly not distinguished. And um, that was great because it was a real wake-up call. It was a reminder that it isn't enough to believe you're special and you know believe you're intelligent. You actually have to do the work. And I showed up at Wesleyan with an enormous chip and on my shoulder, and I did the work, yeah. I did the work, and I did well. And then you made up for it uh, by going to Harvard twice over. Right, right. Well, I think, I, I think my view was, yeah, well, I'll show them. I'm going to go to two graduate schools, so I did. MBA and law school. Right? Yes. You went to Harvard Business School and Harvard Law School. Yeah, I did. So you place a huge premium on education. Uh, I did for myself. I think for other people, you know, it depends. It's a personal choice. So many people who haven't had formal educations have been successful. In my case, you know, I, I don't think I was a born entrepreneur. I'm certainly not a genius. Uh, so I think formal education was very beneficial to me. A lot of people look up to you as a role model. And uh, I'm just curious, have you had a role model, a mentor? Well, I, I've, 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 had, I've come to have mentors over time. I think when I was younger, I was so busy and I, I was so insecure. I think I didn't, I felt like if I asked anyone to help, they wouldn't, why would they want to? Um, but over time, yes. And I, 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 I sort of have, have four mentors, uh, four people I think of mentors, um, uh, which are um, uh, Barry Diller, who was my boss at Fox, who's been so kind to me and generous over the years. Um, Don Gogel, who's the, chairman of Clayton Dubelier and Rice, a big private equity firm, uh, who I met many years ago when I was a summer associate at McKinsey. Um, Dick Parsons, who was the CEO of Time Warner, is a great friend to this day, and incidentally was the person who brought me onto the CBS board and was chairman before I became uh, chairman. And Michael Dorneman, who was my boss at BMG, probably one of, one of the best bosses I ever had, and uh, is on the board of Take-Two now, is a lead independent director. I'm going to keep you for just one more question. You are the head of Take-Two Interactive, one of the most successful video game companies in the world. But you don't play video games, do you? <laughs> I don't. Why? Uh, well, listen, I was also head of two movie studios, and I didn't make movies. Um, <laughs> I was head of a massive record company, and while I was a musician as a teenager, I wasn't a very good one, and I certainly didn't, <laughs> didn't write or produce music. I've uh, run... Multiple television companies. I don't make television shows, and it's my third video yeah, game company. Is a little bit different. Think, so I, you know, I think I think kind of... my view is that there are sort of two things. First, I don't see my role as being creator or consumer in chief. You know, I'm an executive, and uh, I've always been an executive. In the, the old days in Hollywood, I was called a suit, and I'm I'm okay with that. My job um, is to recruit the most talented people, to give them an incredible canvas to paint on to support them with unlimited resources, both financial and human, 
to make sure that their products are distributed and marketed better than anyone else could do that on earth and to be there as a kind listener and guide when they encounter challenges of any sort. I'm very proud of the fact that all of my enterprises have inevitably, even if they started off as turnarounds, found themselves with the highest hit ratios in the business that they work in. They've all become massive hit makers, whether that was Home Alone at 20th Century Fox or Whitney Houston uh, at, at uh, Arista and BMG um, or uh, NBA 2K at 2K, part of Take Two, and the list goes on. And I've had nothing to do creatively with any of them, not with any of them. I haven't had a, an ounce of creative impact. But what I have been able to do is admire and appreciate and therefore attract, retain, and motivate those people who can make the best creative properties. And I, I do seem to have some ability to know the difference between someone who's incredibly creative who's extraordinarily creative and maybe someone who's just not quite at that level. And I seem also to be able to put together a team and build a company and culture that, that makes those people willing to bring their great work to our organization. And uh, I don't know that that's much of a skill, um, but, it, but it does seem to work over and over again. I'm blessed to be able to work with the people who make that happen. Well, that's what makes a great leader. So Strauss Zelnick, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. That was Strauss Zelnick, an extraordinary leader. I hope you took away something from this conversation. I was moved by his humility, by his willingness to talk about his setbacks, and most of all, his commitment to putting people first. And yes, he's also inspired me to up my fitness game. That's Out of Office for this week. Remember, you can find more episodes on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com as well. We're also on Twitter. Our handle is simply at podcasts. This episode was produced by Jordan Gaspare. I'm Malika Kapoor. I'll be back next week. Till then, stay well and thank you for listening. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.